This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Welcome. It's so great to see you all here. I'm so excited about this book. Um, but I just want to jump right in with um, the politics of trauma, somatics, healing, and social justice. You say, Stacy, that this book is for you, the reader, meaning all of us here. Um, and it feels that way. It's an accessible, it's accessible and it's a mix of theory liberatory framework and concrete tools and examples. Why did you choose to build the book this way? Hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in, in many ways, the book is just, not just, it's the last 20 years of work. Um, <clears throat> and I think something in how I orient both to trauma healing work and also social justice work is how do we have very big visions Right? How do we ground that in good assessments? And then how do we make it practical? And I, I really think it's one of the reasons I have stayed in somatics for so long is it really invites a wide range of vision and it's highly pragmatic and it's transformative power. Um, so uh, really having work that helps to produce transformation be accessible is really important to me. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. You didn't forewarn me you were going to ask that. That's, that's <laughs> what I got for now. <laughs> and, and just so that we have sort of common language to start from, can you speak about what you mean by somatics? How do you, how do you define that in your language? Um, somatics is really an, um, a change methodology. Um, grounded in the soma, which doesn't help for a moment, but it will. Um, we really don't use the word body, or I, I try. And, I don't use the word body too much because we have learned such a deeply objectified view of the body, right? Like the body is a thing or a mechanism, and we're going to order that mechanism around, or fix it, or do something to it. And what's so important to me about somatics is it really goes, there's a living organism, right? We're living organisms living in a context that's also alive and we're, we're changing. So somatics is about engaging the thinking, uh, the emotions, the physiology, physicality, the relational space, and also how we act and are actors in the world. And um, somatic transformation is that we can embody a change um, which just means that that change will show up as new options, even when we're under pressure, right? So it's different than an insight or a new understanding, which often disappear suddenly <laughs> when we're under a lot of pressure. But an embodied change or a somatic change will show up and, and, and be able to really withstand pressure. And you said, you mentioned soma. Can you speak about that? Because I love how you speak about it in the book as well. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, it really is just trying to make that distinction that the soma is the integration of the thinking, the emotions, our capacity to relate. You could call it our embodied worldview and what actions we take and what actions we don't take. Right, That would be the soma. Um, and again, I just think most of us, <clears throat> at least who've been um, raised inside of or trained inside of more Western thinking with a deep history of a mind-body split, that when we just add body, uh, it's not quite enough to actually shift the paradigm. And I think somatics actually shifts the paradigm of how we're understanding kind of self and change. And just sort of expanding on that, you talk a lot about generative somatics, which I know is a huge part of the work that you've been doing for so many years. Could you speak a little bit about that here with us and explain how it, what it is, how it came about, how it relates to community work that you've been doing? I really started in the field of somatics in 97. So heading on a lot of years. And I think like many of us have probably experienced is often the kind of more healing, training, therapeutic spaces tend to be fairly classed and fairly white. And then I always had kind of another part of me, another leg in social movement work and social justice work, um, more multiracial and a different kind of ground of analysis. And um, I, I think for me, I was always going, how do these worlds come together? Somatics has so much to add to social justice work, and social justice has so much to add to somatics and transformative work. Um, and um, so Generation 5, um, which is an organization that I founded uh, in 2000, uh, the mission of Generation 5 is to end the sexual abuse of children within five generations and really hold it as... Um, a social change issue, not just a therapeutic issue. Anyway, that was the first place we started experimenting with somatics inside of social change organizations, um, which was helpful because I think what we didn't recognize at the beginning of Gen 5 is as soon as you start bringing child sexual abuse into public discourse with a social analysis around it, you're going to hear about 5,000 stories of child sexual abuse. And it was really, really important that we had a trauma analysis. And even as staff, that we had a way to renew ourselves. You know, it's called secondary trauma now, um, but we had a way to renew and recenter ourselves and actually work with uh, what was happening within communities. I'm giving you the long answer. Um, so uh, around the same time, I started running and designing courses called Somatics and Trauma and really orienting them toward how can this be compelling and relevant for communities that are more targeted and oppressed and for people who are doing social change work. And um, really it's out of those experiments that generative somatics, which is initially what we called the work, right? And then accidentally we called the organization that too. Um, we didn't come up with a better name soon enough. Um, but it really built into somatics relevant for social movement and really a place to experiment with this integration of personal transformation really tied to systemic transformation and how to have somatics or trauma healing serve building more powerful movements. Thank you. Um, I think that you've sort of just alluded to this, but going into it a bit more, um, there's a lot of psychological and somatic approaches that focus on individual healing 
um, and you say this in the book, and don't integrate the social analysis into understanding how we are shaped and what needs changing on these different levels. Um, and that perpetuates oppression and trauma. And so why, in your experience, why do you see that these fields have been so resistant to including the impact of political and social for forces and treatment modalities? Why is most everything in the mainstream resistant <laughs> to integrating a social analysis? I mean, I just think it's how it's built, right? I mean, I think it's how it's built um, to make sure that we don't see the conditions that we're in. And so to me, the field of psychotherapy or is no different. Um, so let's see, a couple of pieces here. Um, uh, th there's a model that we use called sites of shaping, sites of change, and it's in the book, but it's a bunch of concentric circles that really talk about our, our different levels of experience, kind of from the individual to the family, to community, to institutions, to social norms, and then what's beyond humans, right? Spirit and landscape. And I, I think that m most of us have to be trained to see the much broader systems that we're being shaped by or that we're soaking in. Um, obviously, the more targeted or oppressed we are by those systems, the more we start noticing them, the more privileged we are, the more we think it's personal merit that got us there, which is all part of the training. Um, but, but to me, one of the shortfalls, I mean, the book is really for two audiences. It's really for healers, psychotherapists, right? And I, I have a nudge for both audiences or an invitation, depending on the day. Um, but the, the nudge or the invitation for folks doing one-on-one -on -one healing work or therapeutic work is how can we transform the root causes of trauma without doing social change work, right? So much of the pain that people experience experiences deeply personal pain, right? Whether it's violence or intimate violence or child abuse or the impact of hate crimes or just the impact of soaking in social conditions that tell you your peoples are not worth dignity or your peoples are not worth safety or your peoples don't belong. Those all have traumatic impacts. And I feel like those of us who are healers, if we don't integrate that deeply, at the biggest risk, we risk being part of the problem, right? And we don't mean to, but that's really the risk. We risk being part of the problem because we're not seeing the collective pressures that are the root cause of trauma, right? Fantastic. <laughs> um, and then I'm wondering if you could kind of paint a picture for us to illustrate what does the transformation look like in the work that you do on the individual level, on the collective level, if you're working with an organization? Kind of give us maybe some examples or walk us through what it looks like. So the, the, there's the means of how we do it and then there's the outcome. Um, uh, really, somatics has three core components to it. Um, there's somatic awareness. So we're building an awareness that we're beyond a, a set of thoughts right, <clears throat> that sensations have information, that the movement and aliveness in our bodies has information, and that we're these, really we're these vibrating organisms, right? We just kind of got taught to forget that. Um, and I think there's profound satisfaction in that too. Um, so somatic awareness is a very important part that we become more awake to and aware of and feeling of our soma. 
another very essential part of somatics is somatic practice. And the lineage that I come from, which is out of Strozzi Institute work, Richard's in the audience tonight. Hi, Richard. Uh, Strozzi Heckler. Um, that somatic practice, we're, we're always practicing something, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And that can be literally from the depth at which we habitually breathe to how we move toward or move away from things, either automatically or on purpose. And somatic practices, which are like getting up, moving, interacting. Um, a lot of the somatic practices in this lineage come out of Aikido, which is a non-combative martial art. Somatic practices retrain us. So, so one ex uh, example that I'll give is, um, you know, we all know in healing trauma or in really actually being accountable for privilege or in healing internalized oppression, that boundaries, like having boundaries or being able to articulate our needs is a really essential skill. The truth is we could talk about that all day long and still not know how to have a boundary. Right? It is a, is a physiological, physical, relational practice to have a boundary uh, that depends on us being able to feel ourselves and then take action right with, with another. So there's a lot of practices we do that are standing practices where we're literally practicing saying no or consenting or um, you know, having more intimate no's, having stronger declines and making space. But those are, those are somatic learnings. Um, and then the last thing that, that's really essential to this work is somatic opening, which we can imagine that um, we, we've embodied certain adaptations, um, which I'll talk more about, but certain adaptations that become literal shapes in our tissues. It could be numbness, it could be contraction, it can be slackness. And if we just put a new insight on top of that, again, under pressure, this is always going to win. Right? What is most deeply embodied is how we'll be, and it's what will make decisions for us. So when we really look at somatic opening at the level of the tissues or how the energy can move through the body, we're opening, opening that up. Right? Often, as many of you know who are somaticists, very profound stories are held in our tissues. Right? There's a whole storage tank down here right? in the organs, in the, in the lower body, where those, those experiences live. And through somatic opening, those get to really process through and we get to not have so much in our, in our storage tanks. Yeah? So um, overall, what it looks like is bringing different practices and processes and conversations to healing if we're doing one-on-one -on -one work or in organizations and alliances. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you one story. The National Domestic Workers Alliance, um, we've had a, wow, going on a 10-year partnership with them. And we co-designed their leadership development program for their members and their organizers. So, um, you know, 90 plus percent women, huge percentage um, immigrants, some documented, some undocumented. Um, and I don't know if you all know, but domestic workers and uh, farm field workers um, were left out of the labor rights in the 40s because the southern states with a very strong history of slavery would not sign on to the labor rights bills unless field workers and domestic workers were excluded, right? Which is a certain perpetuation of the history of slavery. So that's why we're in the new millennia and we're still working for labor rights um, for those two groups of people. Um, but what we did with 80 
folks over 20 days, we spent 20 days of training the first year, is do a bunch of practices. So everyone had shared practice. Um, we had one entire session that was trauma healing because um, almost everyone has domestic violence, child sexual abuse, the poverty of trauma. Um, many domestic workers are here supporting their families back home and haven't seen their own kids for 15 years. Right? There's a lot of trauma to free up, to free up their leadership. Um, what we found, and then I'll pause because I know you have more questions, but um, oh, that's great. Um, I'll talk more about the natural survival strategies um, that we come up with, or we don't come up with them. They actually came with this amazing uh, evolutionary package that we live in. Um, but um, as a group under pressure, this wasn't everyone, but as a collective body under pressure, the folks at NDWA, right, the, the members, um, would appease, right, would appease, fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate, right, appease and dissociate under pressure. Well, if you're going to go about changing the nation's heart and mind and changing policy, appeasing under pressure doesn't work that well, right? Some folks were in automatic fight also, but especially with intergroup conflict, a lot of appeasing and soothing things over would happen, which doesn't build strong solidarity. Um, so we just did a lot of work on it's like, how do we help heal that response so that really what can show up is choice and power and connection under pressure? It's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I think probably one of my, I have many favorite parts of this book. <laughs> one of them are, is the five sort of main components of the arc of transformation. And I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through however briefly or in depth you would like of the five components and sort of, again, paint a picture of what it looks like in the work. For sure. Um, this might be odd language, but I really think about individual bodies and collective bodies and that they, um, individual body, like people, right, in collectives, um, uh, have longings, have habits, have possibilities, have limitations. And when we're looking somatically, we're really going, what, what is the embodied shape, right? What, what is embodied or automatic in this group or this person? And then how do we free that up to be more and more aligned with their vision and with their values? Right, so that can be at an, at an individual level or, or at a group level. Um, I'll try to do the, the brief version. We call this the arc of transformation. But in somatics, we really start with a question of what do you long for or what do you want? Um, and kind of use this phrase, the body learns on yes. Um, because we're practicing towards something, it's very hard to practice away from something. Yeah, um, we, we, we become what we practice. Um, so we really start with what do you want, what do you long for, and sometimes that's the first piece of the work because some people either have inherited um, commitments that aren't truthfully what they want or what they long for. They've either inherited them from family or from the social conditions. Or some folks, and this is really true with trauma and oppression, nobody ever asked them, right? Um, so what do you want can be a revelatory question <laughs> that needs some time and needs some digging in. Um, to me, what's so beautiful about the question of our longings is that is hard to answer from a mental state alone, 
right? What do we want lives much deeper, right, in our somas. So it's an invitation in already um, to, to that space. Oh, the short version is what I was going to go for. Uh, the second circle, which is really about regenerating safety, um, we really hold in this methodology that we can regenerate or relocate safety as an internal function, right? Now, that doesn't mean all of a sudden the world's safe. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means we have more choice to generate it internally and between each other rather than waiting for it to be safe, right? Which a lot of us who've been hurt, that's a normal survival strategy to be like, I'm just going to tuck in or I'm going to position here. I'm going to hold my breath and I'm going to wait for out there to be safe, primarily being hypervigilant about the world. Yeah, that leaves us with very, very few choices and not very much um, uh, room. Um, so regenerating safety really looks at how we've embodied um, adaptations. Um, somatics is not really about mm, pathologizing people. Somatics is really about going, wow, that's amazing. That's how you shape to survive, <laughs> right? It's very curious. It's a very curious methodology. Um, um, and, and what's great about the human biology is it's actually very predictable, right? Once you see somatically, it is fairly predictable. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story in a minute, but the fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate came with our evolutionary wisdom. And under high levels of pressure or threat, we will do those. And then what happens, and this is one of my, I, I, I have a list of questions for after I die, if there's anyone to ask, because <laughs> I think there's some mistakes in the human biology. Um, and one is that we, <laughs> we generalize our survival strategies. We don't notice that the experience is over. And so if I went into a deep freeze response, but the experience is over, that freeze response got generalized in my system and I keep doing it when it's no longer useful. I think that's a strategic error in our system. So I want to ask if there's anyone to ask, like, did you notice that mistake? Because we're suffering a lot inside of that. Um, <clears throat> so we're really looking at what are our adaptations. Um, we earned our adaptations. We really, really earned them, even if they really don't work and they're really effing things up. Now, um, we came by them honestly. Yeah, so again, families, community, institutions, social norms, right? The environmental conditions that we're in, all of those things <clears throat> inform our adaptations that we embody to navigate. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this, I don't think I can go through the whole arc in any kind of short way, so I might pause after this. Um, is that um, somatics really understands that we have these constitutive needs or inherent needs for safety, belonging, and dignity. And in many ways, if we look at um, oppression, if we look at systems of oppression, if we look at power over systems, they manipulate safety, belonging, and dignity to concentrate those things in a small specific group of people, right? Um, also to concentrate resources in a small and specific group of people while exploiting the earth and other people to concentrate that resource. It is basically a traumatic setup, right? A power over setup is a traumatizing setup because of its manipulation of safety, belonging, and dignity.
Yeah. So, you know, we all want something very different. Yeah. We want something different. So that, that whole space of the, of the, the arc about regenerating safety is really working with all these components again at a very deep somatic level to increase our capacity to self-generate or group generate safety, belonging, and dignity, even when we are in oppressive conditions, right? Because we got to do it now to help us change the world. Yeah, we got our, our both and, yeah. And that's sort of power from within and power with. Yep. And then how do we build power to change broader systems? Yeah, yeah, collective power. Collective power. Mm-hmm. One of the pieces in the arc, and I'm happy if you want to keep talking about the arc of transformation because I really love it, but one of the pieces that I was struck by was around shame and the role that shame plays in those of us who are in trying to process and heal and recover from trauma and those of us who are trying to process and heal and recover from trauma within oppressive systems and how we take on shame and the role of shame. And I just wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. I love shame. Um, I mean, I, I don't love having it. I have a lot of it. But oh my God, it's so amazing what shame is and does. Um, shame is big, man. It's a very defining force. Um, and again, used, right? Used by broader conditions. Um, I just have to read this really quick. It's this amazing, very short poem by, um, it's by Eduardo Galeano. Um, and uh uh, the, po- the poem goes, the church says the body's a sin. Shame, right? Shame-based religion. The church says the body's a sin. Science says the body's a machine. Advertising says the body's a business. The body says I am a fiesta. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so back to shame. Um, the... Um, Uh, How I've come to see it at this point somatically is where there is harm, there is shame. Um, I grew up around a lot of pine trees. I love pine trees. Um, And probably with any tree, but I just know pine trees best. You know, if you cut the bark at all, what shows up is the sap, right? The sap runs into that space. Now, that's actually to heal the wound of the tree, to seal it up so it doesn't get infected. Um, It's very odd, but shame plays a very similar role for us, right? So a somatic understanding of shame is that shame is really helping us manage very profound uh, harms and emotions that feels like if we feel them or they take us over, they might take us down. So it has a protective role, which is so funny because it can be so devastating, right, in our, in our lives. Um, but it has a protective role. And we, 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 we have this piece that we call the shame trampoline. Um, and so you go, okay, what's on top of the trampoline bouncing around are, is all, are all of those shame-based beliefs, right? I'm too much. I'm stupid. Um, I'm, I don't know. Help me out. What are we? Not I'm not enough. I'm too much. What else? Stupid. I'm stupid. I'm a failure. I'm too needy. Right. Awesome. You all, thank you. So 
these are all the things bouncing around on top of the trampoline and they're really compelling. They really take our attention and then we believe them and then we go into all these strategies, right? About uh, how to hide it, how to manage it, how to not be that. But what's interesting is what we see is in really blending, there's a core principle in somatics that instead of trying to take something apart, we support it in the direction it's going and then it softens and begins to open, right? The soma really works like that. Um, but when we blend with shame, when we support it in the direction it's going, what happens it is it opens and starts revealing much deeper states like helplessness, right? Much deeper states like terror, right? Or rage, right? The big end of the emotional scale that are the normal responses to trauma, right? And are, that are the normal responses to oppressive social conditions. So we really hold, we respect shame and really work with it um, in a way that the body can unwind it. You know how you've tried to talk yourself out of shame and it doesn't work at all? Or like you've told your best friend a hundred times, no, that's not true about you. And then they still believe it, right? Shame needs something really different. It needs to be joined, not left alone, and then worked with so it can unwind from the body and what's underneath it can get really processed through, through the body, right? And the emotions. Yeah. So shame, we do a lot of work with shame. It's very necessary because it can run so much. Do you want to just say more about, about what it looks like, about what, how the work goes in with shame? You mean like how the processes look? <laughs> um, I can. It's so funny. You're going to like one of the deepest processes we do and then describing it without doing the process. So let me see. So... Um, uh, so what one of the processes look like is once we do some education around it, it's also very important to put a political analysis or a social analysis because it's important that people know that rape wasn't their fault, right? Because a lot of things tell us that certain harms that are done to us are our fault or that racism is not your fault, right? So first we have to go, how are we doing on that kind of mental level of understanding what is and isn't our fault, whatever we deeply believe. Um, and then we really move into getting really curious about what we believe is shameful about us, like what's bad about you? And we welcome it. And in welcoming it, we get next to it, we get closer to it. And there's a process that we do where it's seated side by side. Um, some people in here have done it. Seated side by side. Shame doesn't like to be looked at directly, right? It likes to hide. Um, so seated side by side, and we'll just go, if I'm the practitioner, I just go, what's, what's bad about you? Person might say, I'm too much. I'm not enough. Uh, it was all my fault. And all I do is blend. As a somatic practitioner, I blend, and I go, so it's all your fault. And they go, yeah. And I'm bad, you're bad. Right, this is very counterintuitive for most therapists. It's very uncomfortable at first, but it works somatically because as we start to blend and actually be with the shame and then go, what are you noticing in your body? What's happening? The body will start to unwind, right? Because the shame is not trying to hide and get away anymore. Someone's meeting it on its own terms, right? The body changes a lot when we meet it on its own terms. And then often, somatic processes will happen, like trembling will start, sweating will start, 
tears might come or all the all the things that we call dearmoring work will start to happen which is where the real change is at and we'll stay in that blending um, as long as is right for that person um, and then there's a few more steps after that shame is like a multi-session process <laughs> um, but blending is first then we'll move into a process of really moving a lot of energy dignity power through the body we'll often use movement, Thai kickboxing pads, um, something we call the spirited commitment to dignity, but moving a lot of energy that has dignity and connection in it through the body. And then there's a whole process around generating forgiveness, which primarily starts with self-forgiveness. Um, those are some of the pieces. That takes a long time. That's a whole four-day training just to introduce people to, <laughs> but hopefully I did it justice. It's fantastic, and I and I really appreciate you walking us through the different steps and sort of what it looks like in this framework. I think, I think, we can get excited about these big concepts, but seeing what the what it actually looks like in practice is really helpful. So thank you for that. Um, going back to the exciting arc, and also, um, and also the your take on the socio ecological model. What do you call that? The sites of shaping, sites of change. Sites of shaping, sites of change. Um, can you speak a little bit more about spirit and landscape? Yeah. Um, I know it can be shocking sometimes, but there are lots of things that are not human. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we're, we're fairly self-centered at this point in, human, in history. Um, uh, so there are forces that shape us. That, that we adapt and inform our embodiment that are not just human forces. And that felt very, very important to put in all of our models. We'll have a, a circle of spirit and landscape. And please call spirit whatever makes sense to you. Um, um, you know, the ever-expanding universe. Um, all the dark matter. Isn't that cool that we have no idea what all that dark matter is? That's so relieving to me, really, somehow. <laughs> um, so... Um, yeah, so spirit and landscape for a couple of reasons. Y'all are probably familiar with a lot of the research on resilience, um, relationship to land and relationship to something bigger, a guiding larger force are hugely resilient factors for us as people. And, um, you know, whether it's the nature, like getting to be in wilderness, and I know that's not comfortable for all groups of people. A lot of people didn't have access to that and it's more scary historically than renewing. Um, but uh, being in nature, um, I mean, literally growing a plant, um, there's a lot about having other species around us that really makes a big difference. Obviously, animals is a big resilience factor for many people, um, but relationship to land. So those pieces are in there because they do shape and affect us, and we can be in a more conscious relationship with them to build resilience. And... Um, um, yeah, I think it's that big reminder. I think in climate, right, climate justice work, environmental justice work, um, indigenous rights work, there's a very strong focus on radically shifting our relationship to land. And um, I mean, I, I really, it's, you know, one of the things we say is we are nature. We are nature. Nature isn't out there, right? We're nature. We're just part of nature that really has a huge amount of ability to manipulate other parts of nature, sometimes in ways that are really not good for life. 
Um, and I think that's what, I mean, our generation and the next two are going to be grappling hard, right? We're going to be grappling very, very hard with climate and the impact of what we've done over these, these I mean, really just since the Industrial Revolution. Um, so anyway, all of that to really bring that, that consciousness in to what I we're really up to. I really appreciate that you bring in those two pieces in this model. Um, you mentioned resiliency. Can you say more about how this model conceptualizes resiliency and um, and how you think about it in terms of transformation on the personal and the collective level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, w one of the first conversations that we'll be in with um, social movement organizations or alliances is, of course, what what's the collective commitment here? What's the collective vision or longing? And then also right away, what's the collective resilience? because we want to be building and purposely feeding and practicing resilience on purpose rather than waiting for it to happen to us. And even in doing community organizing work, um, when we look at, you know, how do you um, help support the um, increased choice and collective power of a community, um, we want to go not just what is this community facing that's harmful, we also want to go what is, what's already resilient that can turn into a purposeful practice that will help build right toward toward where we're going. Um, one of the things I really want to invite us to be careful about with resilience, I don't know how much y'all are reading about it, but there is a bit of a, a, a default use of resilience that actually uh, is, is a part of, I would say, power overthinking or oppressive thinking, which is those people are so resilient, right? And I think we just need to be very awake and very careful about that. And it's mostly people with more systemic privilege that are making that evaluation. Um, it is not not easy to be poor or right any group that's really in the under of the power over, right? It it it's harmful, right? So we want to be be awake there, um, but we can purposefully cultivate resilience. And learning what brings us that sense of aliveness, wholeness, connectedness, um, what lets us go, oh, I can I can bounce back or we can bounce back. I think of it like moss. You know, you step on moss and if the moss is healthy, it's like, bing, comes back up. Um, and we can unpack those practices and then do it on purpose, like a daily practice. And it in some ways just buoys the system in either healing trauma or doing collective action together. If you don't mind sharing something from your own experience of building your own resiliencies to do this work over the years, what does that look like for you? Yeah, thank you for asking. I, um, uh, I grew up in a very small town in rural Colorado. I grew up in the Rockies at 9,100 feet. And um, I share some of this in my introduction, but when... Um, you know, I think about the violence I was dealing with as a child within my family. Um, I, I just go, no, the, the mountains and the pine trees and the aspen trees and the sweet water um, is what kept me more whole. It's what kept me more whole. Um, and I also trusted them when I didn't trust people. And I was like, so, so was, I wasn't left with nothing to trust because I trusted the wilderness. Um, that's my landscape. 
Yeah, yeah, it lives very, very deeply in me. Um, I got to have a sabbatical from work this year for three months, um, and I went back to the mountains. I was like, what do I need to do? Oh, I need to go home. And um, I just spent time outside. It was cold because it was winter still. Um, but I just spent time outside and really listened. There's a way it kind of, I feel like wilderness reharmonizes me if I get out of the way. And um, yeah, it's just a place I can listen and renew. Thank you. Mm. Um, I kind of want to ask, how how did you become so amazing? <laughs> how did you find, and what I mean by that is obviously you're amazing, and how did you find your way into this world, into this work, into you know, several decades of transforming communities and beings? How did you, how did you become <laughs> you? <laughs> um, that's so funny um, let me see how do I how would I answer this question today um, I think there was a point in my life that's so interesting it's just so interesting how we get shaped so many things shape me I mean, I grew, I grew up working class and there was a way of like, just pick it up and do it. You know, there's something about a work ethic and like no one's going to help you. There's just something about that that I has, I don't know, there's a bad side of that too, but there's something about that that had me just keep going. Um, but I, I, I also think there was some point in my life I think because I dealt with so much violence so young. So I was sexually abused by my dad and some of his friends when I was a kid. So were my sisters. And, um, you know, intimate partner violence or domestic violence looks so many different kinds of ways, but it was happening in my house as well. And then we were all um, girls, like three girls, and with a father who wanted boys. And the good part of that is I did all the things that I would have never gotten to do had he had a son, which is like snowmobile and chop wood and, you know, all of that good stuff. Um, but I just think I was navigating fear so early. Um, and then what's weird is my father's also very loving. It's very complex. I just think I was navigating complexity, contradiction, fear. But there was some point when I just was like, I need to trust something much bigger and I need to follow it and I can't run the road of fear. It's gonna, I just won't make it. Um, so so, so I, I took a lot of guidance from the land and I took a lot of guidance from spirit. And when people didn't agree, I didn't really care because um, I didn't trust them that much anyway. <laughs> Um, so I just think I just leveraged both the guidance and also a certain quality of like, I was terrified, but also fearless that kept me going. Um, and I also, I hated things being unfair. Even as a kid, I hated unfairness and, um, I didn't know the word justice. I mean, I grew up, we didn't talk about justice in my family. Um, but as I discovered language for it, I'm like, oh, that's what I like. You know, so, you know, followed the, followed the threads and kept leveraging my courage. <coughs> and one more thing I think I'll say is I just, there's so many people to thank. 
you know, it felt great getting to write my gratitude part of the book because I was like, oh, my God, the people who've built me, the people who've built me. And, you know, really in somatics, I want to thank Richard, like Richard invested in me. And then when I was like, I'm going to take this in some really different ways, all he did was support me. He didn't go, well, that's not what the methodology is, <laughs> right? Um, so somatics that way, and Robert Hall, who just died, he died a few weeks ago, and I was really happy to get to see him before he passed. And then I just think about the people who invested in my politics and my social analysis. And um, I don't know if folks know Chandra Mohanty. She's a third-wave feminist theorist. Anyway, I got to study with her in college. I got to meet Audre Lorde in college. I mean, how great I got to study with bell hooks. I mean, those folks love the 90s. I mean, I just, you know, I just got to be with all those people before they were so amazingly famous. Um, but I'm so thankful. I'm so, so thankful to the people who helped name my world and what was going on. I had the impulse, but I didn't have the analysis. And, um, and really the people I partnered with in GS over this, this last decade, um, you know, we grapple together, we love each other, we fight with each other, but we just have a bigger commitment that we stay stay in it together. And, you know, uh, co-founder of GS is Spenta Kandawala. We just love her. Um, Raquel Lavinia, a lot of people in the book. Um, each chapter almost has a narrative from uh, basically one of the people who's a teacher um, in GS, um, who've taken the work very seriously. They're at least a decade in and who use the work on themselves and use it in their leadership or their healing work. And I just really wanted, I didn't want to do those little small quotes throughout the book. I really wanted other voices to speak it from their perspective in ways that I can't speak. Like I'm my social location. I'm white, um, grew up working class, live pretty much middle class now, got a college education, you know, um, I just really wanted people to be able to, to speak somatics from their location and their lens. And there's, I think, 11 um, stories throughout the book from a lot of these folks. So that, that shaped me deeply. Yeah. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. And you just brought GS back in again. And I'm wondering if you can just speak about what's going on with GS. What what work are you all doing? I know there's a lot of amazing folks you have, leaders, facilitators. What's going on with GS? Um, GS is good. Um, we're about to hit a decade. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's good to ha run an organization, make a lot of mistakes, learn from it, and then do a second organization and correct a lot of those mistakes. So I feel like it was round two. Um, uh, so I just want to note the founding of GS is we, we started in 2009 and 10 with running like a 16-day somatics program and invited movement leaders from around the country just to go, will you do this experiment with us? And at the end of it, what we want to hear is, do you think this is relevant for building liberation? What do you think? And awesome folks were in there. Um, Alta Star, some folks might know. People know Adrienne Marie Brown now. Um, uh, anyway. Lots of amazing folks were in there. We ran the 16 days, and at the end, they were like, go, yes, let's do this, right? So we really wanted to test it first. But out of that grew GS. And um, uh, GS very, very specifically brings a politicized somatics, that's what we call it, to social 
justice and climate justice movements. It's like we want to put booster power behind the change makers, right? We're like, okay, at this point in history, how do we, um, like where are the acupuncture points on the broader social and economic system that can leverage the highest amount of holistic change in the short amount of time we have? <laughs> Right, that's really what GS is trying to do. So we're like, okay, let's put our power, let's put the transformative power of somatics behind the social movement leaders and organizations. Um, so we run courses, right? Somatics and trauma and resilience as one orientation. We run embodied leadership work um, to help build leadership. Um, and then we have what we call movement partners, which is we really like get close and partner with movement organizations over long periods of time. Like we're heading into our fifth year with the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. They're making a lot, a lot of impact nationally uh, around climate, uh, climate justice. Racial Justice Action Center in Atlanta. Um, just this was huge. Um, a big old prison that they were gonna upgrade into this even bigger prison. Um, Racial Justice Action Center fought it, and instead of Atlanta building a prison, they built a wellness center for poor people. It was a, a huge win. Um, so Sochi, Socha Bavera, who's in the book, really led that. So we partner closely with organizations over time because we're going, how does this collective body become the most powerful collective body to fulfill its social or climate justice mission? Yeah, so th those are the types of work that we do. There's flyers on everybody's seats, um, so you can check it out. We have a new website, so I no longer feel ashamed about our website, which I did for a very long time. <laughs> now I feel proud of it. Um, that just launched a few weeks ago. Um, so you can you can check us out, um, check out the the courses and the work. Yeah. Thank you. The, the book, The Politics of Trauma, where do you see, who do you see reading the book how do you see it being used in community and in, in, and with individuals? Thank you, yeah. Um, I really see it having two audiences. One audience is really healers, therapists. Um, the other is folks doing social movement work and activists. And um, uh, what I hope it does, um, I, I think it is our generation, and I'm gonna say that wide, maybe like 20s to 60s, like those of us who are here right now on the planet, um, I think it's. I think one of the things we are doing is we're re-intersecting personal and systemic transformation in our generation. I think it's one of our generation's jobs, given the the the, the climate and the the social conditions that we're in. And I notice a long a lot of people longing for it, and I'm like, wow, there's some collective longing to go. I really want to go deep inside, and I really want to change the world. Both. Um, so, and I trust that. I trust that in us. Right, something happening in our generation. Um, what did you ask me? <laughs> Where do you see the book? Who, who's reading the book? What is the power of the book? Where is it going? Who, Got it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just think it's a contribution to, to that. I think it's a contribution to go, let's find that together. Let's find the theory of it. Let's find the frameworks of it. And really, really, let's find the path and practice of it so we can do it, not just think about it. We can do it, which somatics is, a, is really good at doing things and not just thinking them. Um, and one thing that's complicated, I, and I might have said this too many times in the book, so sorry if I did, is you can't learn somatics through reading about it. 
you can learn somatic theories through reading about them. But really, somatics is a path. It's a path of practice. Um, so the best way to learn somatics is get with someone who's farther down the path than you and l learn from them and with them and do your daily practices and, of course, do your deep internal work and then join a collective of some sort and do social action together, right? That's, that's the kind of invitation out of the book is that we... Um, learn through practice. We learn through engagement. Um, I mean, I'm a big theory head. I love reading and learning and study, and we should do that too. Um, but we can't create embodied change through that alone. We have to engage in changing the soma. So I hope folks use it for that, use it to get together, practice together, and um, keep forwarding this um, this integration that I think many of us are hearing or longing for mm -hmm. yeah about personal and social change being really interdependent and co-serving mm -hmm. you when you were talking about shame you gave us the example of somatic blending um and um, when and which was really exciting for me to just see how it's used in your framework can you just describe that again and then also about somatic opening and somatic blending I'm going back into the somatics because I'm really excited no, about it. No, it's good. It's, it's <laughs> awesome knowing the arc. We're now at the third circle in the arc. Oh, good. It's okay. called somatic We've opening. Here. Good. Okay, yeah, good. exactly. We're back. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so I had a very early teacher that said effectiveness is the measure of truth. And I've thought about that for a very long time, which basically brings me around to go, does it work? Like test it. Does it work? And one of the things that works with the soma is blending. Um, blending is a, a very profound orientation that comes out of Aikido, which is basically if there's energy coming towards you, I, hopefully any of you who practice Aikido, I'm sorry for how I'm going to be rough with this. But if, if energy or attack or something's incoming, instead of countering it, you actually join with it and transform it, right? It's like um, you don't swim against the current. If you're in the ocean or in a riptide, you swim with the riptide and then you change direction, right? So, so blending is like that and the soma really responds to blending. So um, we can do this together, but I'll describe it for the podcast. If you just make a fist, right, and make a pretty tight fist, and then the first round, what we're gonna try to do is pull open that fist. So with your other hand, you know, like pull it open, like stop being closed, pull it open, right? And what do you feel happening in your body and in your fist? Right, it tightens, it resists, right? So blending is this. So same thing, fist, right? We're making a fist. And then in your other hand, just as much as possible, get present and without a big agenda, right? And then go over and very gently just be present with the fist and support it in the direction it's going. What happens? Softening. Softening. I notice I took a breath. I took a deeper breath. Yeah. This is a simple modeling of blending, but where we have numbness, contractions, right where we have conflict, blending begets or supports opening. It's not the only move, 
There's other moves we need to have, but it's a very profound orientation for literally the tissues, the connective tissues, the the body, um, and in conflict. So p- part of the next circle, circle yes, four, good, good, good. Um, uh, <laughs> my life in an arc. Um, uh, when we talk about shame and healing shame, we also talk about conflict being generative, which is a whole range of embodied skills that with conflict, where we usually get picked up, triggered, and sent into some level of fight, flight, freeze, appease, or dissociate, how do we have conflict be generative so that at the end of conflict, we're more intimate and connected, and we're less torn and split, right? Not always possible, but I think way more possible than we usually practice. Um, but it's much, much later in the art because it takes a lot of competencies or it takes a lot of embodied change to, to get there. Um, but sorry, back to opening for one minute. Um, I'm going to do a plug because it's very important. Um, I know that a lot of somatic approaches are really centering and highlighting somatic awareness because it fits more easily in Western therapeutic models. Yeah, it does not mean it's more effective, right? So one of the places I'm really wanting to nudge somatics in this generation is to keep including touch. Nothing replaces touch. It needs to be informed, consensual, but it is so hard to talk someone out of a contraction that has been protecting them for two decades with somatic awareness, somatic awareness, somatic awareness, instead of just touch them, (laughs) right? Touch, show the connective tissues they can open, remind the shoulder where it belongs while we're bringing somatic awareness and while we're engaging in deep emotional work. I think it's very important that we continue to include touch. So somatic body work and training people in somatic body work is a big part of our work. Um, That's also in circle three, somatic opening. (laughs) Um, It's just one of the most effective ways to do body up transformation and body up healing um, is through, you know, informed uh, present touch. Spoke to arc four. Enough. I mean, how do you talk about it? In small bits. Yeah. Mutual connection, healing, shame, conflict is generative. That's circle four. You're committed. Okay, good. And circle five. I mean, um, I mean, we have five minutes, but you know, I think, I think, just yeah, rounding it out. It's fine. Nice. Good. Okay. Good. Good. Thank okay. You. There are five circles in the arc of transformation in this model. The model should be a hologram. We're organic, right? We're organic. We aren't pieces of paper. Piece of paper used to be trees. Um, yeah. So we're, we're, we're organic. The, the arc, if I could do it, it would be a pulsing moving hologram. I don't know how to do that. I'm sure some tech person does. Um, so the, the, the fifth part in this path, in this road, um, is uh, embodying the change, right? Or sustaining the change. And really what that is, is that we have a large chunk of our practices, our conscious pur- purposeful practices are aligned with that longing and vision we set out with, right? So we're now embodying the longing can act from it the vast majority of the time. But it's important, I notice particularly with trauma, like people are like, wow, I feel happy a lot. Wow, I don't live out of that anxiety so much anymore. Or uh, there'll be a culture change within an organization where they're like, wow, we just dealt with conflict really well. We couldn't do that at all two years ago. 
right? So the embodied change is happening and then there'll be a suspicion. Like when is the other shoe actually going to drop? You know, y'all know that, right? And then we start feeding the hypervigilance again, right? Which it's okay. We need hypervigilance. We just don't want to live in it all day long every day, right? We need it like deer need it, like perk up, ears move around, decide what we're going to do. We just don't want it to be constant. Um, so that circle five is really about, let me double down on my new practices and let me actually get used to joy. Let me actually get used to a quality of intimacy or like that exhaled safety in oneself. Let me actually get used to it and not just sort for when it's not going to happen next. So there's a particular completion phase that happens there. That's really important. And then you'll see on the arc um, that there's an arrow back over to number one, circle one, right? Because usually we embody something new and then all of a sudden we go, oh, and then there's the next horizon of change or there's the next longing that I now notice I have permission for. And then we keep growing, right? Is until we're not here anymore. Um, so that's the good news. <laughs> Thank you for that and for, and for speaking about the fifth part. Um, the embodiment of the change. Um, just in closing, I, I wonder two things. If there's any sort of parting words that you want to say around the book and also how people listening to the podcast can get the book because everybody here is going to buy one and talk to you about it. But how can they um, get the book? Awesome. Well, it is just out. Today was the actual official pub date. But yay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> But I, I've heard from other people who has been in their independent bookstore for like two weeks. So it is out there already. So first thing, you know, support your independent bookstores. Yes. Um, go to your local bookstores. I know Amazon's convenient, but let's support our local bookstores. It's a good place to get it. Yeah. Um, yes. And then it's on all those websites, too, where you buy a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. And any any last closing comments? Yeah, closing comments about the book, or I, th I think um, I mean um, you know mostly what I want to invite, encourage. Like obviously, we care about similar things. We're sitting in this room together, um, but really for for those of you who spend the majority of your time more in healing work, join a social justice organization right? Do more than donate. For sure, donate. But join a social justice organization, right? How we change different sites take different methods of change, right? It's very important that healing is accessible, right? That we integrate a social analysis and we can do a lot of transformation for individuals and for systems of people through healing. But, but healing alone does not beget structural change, right? For social change, we have to have social movements, right? The bigger kind of a circle is, the more people it takes to change that place. So for those of us who spend most of our time in healing work, please join, right? Join a, a, a social justice organization or alliance. And then for those of you who spend most of your time in activism work or social change work, I want to support your healing work. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're building those bridges together. Fantastic. Thank cool. you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you too. So thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all.
You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast. 